Amen. If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, and we are going to uh, continue our study today through the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Have you ever heard the phrase, this person's like a man without a country? Ever heard that phrase before? It, it kind of describes someone who doesn't fit in in, in either side, so to speak. They, they don't kind of uh, find themselves on an island, so to speak. Uh, a man without a country. It, it comes from a classic short story by Edward Everett Hale. And in that short story, written a long time ago, uh, it's about a, a young officer named Philip Nolan. And he was tricked into following a treasonous plot that was established by his commander, whose name was Aaron Burr. So Aaron Burr, the commander, has kind of duped and tricked his um, uh, one that's following him, named Philip Nolan. Uh, eventually, the plot was full, and, um, and Aaron Burr was, was, was found out to be a, a traitor. But Philip Nolan was just so convinced um, that, um, that, 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 that Aaron Burr was this you know, person worthy of following, he couldn't believe that he would be a traitor, and so Philip Nolan irrationally said that he, he never wanted to see the flag of the United States of America ever again. And you know what? His, in the story, his wish was granted. He was forbidden from ever stepping foot again in the United States. He was sent off into a ship, and in the story, he's roaming the sea as a man without a country. And we talked about a couple weeks ago, I believe it was two weeks ago now, that that phrase carries with it the idea of live as citizens. And the idea is live as heavenly citizens. And so we looked at three things a couple weeks ago of what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If you remember, uh, those three things were this idea of... Um, that we have to stand firm. The second one that we looked at was humility. And then the third one was unity. That those three things mark kingdom of heaven citizens on earth. We have a kind of tenacity, not meanness, but the idea that nothing is going to take me away from Jesus Christ. If it means death, like it means for our brothers and sisters in Somalia that we prayed for earlier, I'm holding fast to Jesus. The second thing is it means unity, that nothing is more important than the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, and so that we can put aside other lesser things to stay unified in that. And then the other is humility, the fact that we count others as better than ourselves, that we're not just selfishly focused upon what, is, what I need, but we're thinking about what are the needs of others. Now, Look with me at Philippians chapter 2 and beginning in verse uh, 12. It says this, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke 
in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice, Paul says, in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. So Paul is continuing this idea of faithfully living out our heavenly citizenship on earth. And that's what I want to speak to you about again today. This is kind of part two from two weeks ago. But faithful citizens of heaven while on earth. Faithful citizens of heaven while on earth. A couple weeks ago we looked at those three things. Tenacity, unity, and humility. Today I want to look at three more things. Of what it looks like, what it means to live as faithful citizens of heaven right now on the earth. Pray with me. Father, thank you for our time now that we get to look into this passage and I pray, Lord, you'd open it up to us. Uh, give us understanding. Give, give each person who's here today uh, eyes to see and ears to hear truth from your word. Thank you that by your son we have been made citizens of the kingdom of God. We've been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your dear son. That our citizenship right now is in heaven and we have dual citizenship in a sense. We have a temporary earthly citizenship. We have a lasting eternal citizenship in heaven. Speak to us today, Lord, about what it means to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you these three truths today about what it means to be a faithful citizen of heaven while on earth. The first one is to obey. That's the first key. Uh, the first command, so to speak, is to obey. And what it means to obey is to work out what God has worked in us. To work out what God has worked in. Obedience. Working out what God has worked in. Have you ever thought about the difference that one word can make? I mean, if you change one word, the difference that it can make? I heard about this guy who had this crush on a girl. And he'd known her for a long time. And he had never opened up about his feelings towards this girl. He was always too afraid. He was afraid of rejection. And he would see her. And he, and he, and he, he wanted to share his feelings with her. He was hoping for a relationship with her. But he never could bring himself to say something about it. And so uh, one day, he was reading his Bible. This is a good Christian young man. He's reading in 1 John. I just finished reading through 1 John recently. And, and I came across this verse. And, and but he was reading in 1 John. He's reading in chapter 4. And, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says that there is no fear in love. Perfect love casteth out fear. Now, listen carefully. A verse is not talking about your dating love, okay? It's talking about our love for God. But, but he looked at that and he started to think, wait a second. There's a, there's a truth here, though, that if I really do care about this girl the way that I think I do, I'm not going to let fear stop me from sharing my feelings for her. Now, he was too timid to just go and say something to her. So he decided he was going to write her a letter. So he writes this letter. He shares about his feelings for her, about for how many years he, he's, 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 he's wanted to, to work up the courage to share these feelings. And finally, he, he has his courage and he ends the letter by saying, P.S., 
This verse in the Bible is what gave me the courage uh, to speak to you about this. Read this verse and, and you'll know why I wanted to write this letter. Well, he signs his name and he puts the verse on there, 1 John 4, 18. Or so he thought. He forgot that little number one or the letter or the, the word first. And he, instead of putting 1 John 4, 18, he put John 4.18. Do you know what John 4.18 says? John 4.18 says this, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that thou saidest truly. Now the story goes on that the guy never had a date with that girl because he blew it with that one word. No, but my point is, is that one word can make a huge difference. And imagine changing the, the word. Look at verse 12 again of Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Imagine instead of it saying, work out, it says work for your own salvation. How many of you would agree that that would be a huge change? Work for your own salvation. That's not what it says. And praise God it doesn't say that. And if you're listening and watching or if you're here, I hope you understand that Christianity is not about what you and I can do to appease God. It's not about how good we can be. It's not about how much we can obey in order to merit and earn God's favor. There is nothing that we can do to work for our salvation. And that's not, praise God, what Paul says. He says, work out your own salvation. What does that mean? It means to live out the transforming work that God has first worked in us. And so he says that they are to work out what God has worked in them. That transforming work, new change of heart that God has, has brought about in them. They are to work out in their daily life of obedience. He goes on to tell them the kind of attitude that they should have whenever they're serving God in obedience. He calls it fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. I'm afraid there's a lot of professing Christians that don't exhibit any kind of fear and trembling towards God. Please, don't ever call God the man upstairs. We ought to have this kind of holy seriousness and reverence for God. And then their motivation for doing this is that God was working in them, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So that's the idea, he says in verse 13, that they can work out, they can live out their salvation because God is, is working in them, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now the idea of will is the desire. And, and I found so much encouragement on this verse in my life, that, that God is, is working in me the desire to serve him and to follow him and to obey him. And this supplied them with the confidence that they could work because God was working in them. Now, now, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, obviously, we're saved by grace and not by works. That salvation is a gift that is received. It's not something that's earned by merit. Yes, we are saved for a purpose of good works, for the glory of God. And we are to work out what God has worked in us. The other thing I want you to see from this and, and I hope you can focus in on this and, and capture this. Don't go to sleep on these great truths. But I want you to see the tension, the, the, the pull of what we call divine sovereignty and human responsibility. 
Divine sovereignty versus human responsibility. In other words, there's something God does, and there's something that he's called us to do. And we can fall off on two different extremes. Now, again, we're not talking about salvation, because there's nothing that we do to, to, to merit our salvation. We're talking about working out or living out our salvation. And there's, there's the divine side, what God does, and then there is the, the human side of our responsibility. Now, now what, what does this extreme look like? Well, one extreme is leaning so heavily into the divine sovereignty side that, that we just think that we're just like completely passive. That, that we just think God's going to do it, and there's no action on our part. But we kind of just wait for God. It's almost like we're we're the, we're the sail, and then, and then God's just going to blow the wind, and then we're not going to have to do any action ourselves to obey him. There are some people that believe in what's called a second work of grace, and it's this idea that you kind of have to wait for God to bring about this kind of, of miraculous work in you as a Christian before you can really serve him effectively. And, and what that creates in some people is kind of a, a passivity where they're just kind of waiting for some miraculous thing to happen in order for them to begin to work out their salvation. I think that's a, a wrong extreme. The other extreme is an over-reliance upon self-effort. It's almost this that God saves us and then he just kind of leaves us to ourselves and it's just all up to us to work as hard as we can and it's almost like we're, we're, just, we're just trying to do it on our own. Friends, I think both of those are unhealthy extremes. I, I think it begins with divine sovereignty. God is first at work in us. But friends, we are also called to work out. And so don't neglect either of those important truths. And, and I think this passage should really humble us and it should give us hope. It humbles us because without God first working in us, we could not obey him faithfully. Did you hear that? If God does not first work in us, there's no way that we can work out or live out in obedience our faithful citizenship of heaven on earth. So we, in one sense, are humbled by this because it reminds us that we are dependent upon the work God is doing, both giving us the desire and to, to actually work and to act, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But it also gives us hope because God has worked in us. God is working in us. And I hope you've experienced that. I hope you know what it's like that God working in your heart, giving you new desires that you previously did not have. I hope you've experienced what it's like to have desires to read his word and to pray and to obey him and to know him and to love him and to serve him. And that it humbles you because you think, I didn't create that. I didn't put that there. I didn't do that. God has been working that in me. And it's through that work he's doing in us that gives us this hope and confidence that, yes, I can begin to pursue this and seek him. So it fills us with hope because God has and is working in us. You remember what we looked at a few weeks ago from Philippians 1? being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is working in us so we can do our part and work out and live out this obedience. So the first word is obey. That's what it looks like to live as 
citizens of heaven while on earth. We're working out what God has worked in. Let me give you the second word, and it's the word shine. And by shine, I mean do everything without complaining and arguing. There are three commands in verses 12 through 18 that we looked at. Three commands. The first command is to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, the second command is not to shine, but I think the word shine help us to understand the command. The command is actually that sentence that you see on the screen after the word shine. The command he gives us is to do all things without murmuring. Now, the word murmuring means grumbling or complaining. And then the second thing he says is without disputings. And I think the idea is, is arguing. It, it carries with it the idea of, of reasoning or thoughts in the mind that I think turn into arguments among people. And by the way, when you put these two words together, complaining and arguing, it reminds us of another common theme in the book of Philippians, which is unity that we look at often. Evidently, the Philippians were having trouble with unity. Evidently, there was some complaining, some arguing, some friction in the church. We're going to see that in a few weeks as we study Philippians chapter 4. So Paul is saying, no, 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 do all of your work for God, your daily living. Do it without complaining, without arguing. I think this can be taken in a couple ways. First of all, we can first of all be complaining to God about our circumstances, about our life, we can have these thoughts and arguments in our mind toward God, and that's the first and foremost thing that we need to lay aside. Do none of those things while we're complaining and grumbling and murmuring towards God. And we can also have those kinds of things towards others. We can get complaining about other people. We can begin complaining to other people. We can be disputing and arguing and divisive with other people. This is what he says, don't do these things. But he tells them why. And I love this about, Paul doesn't just say, hey, do this. But he gives you in verse 15 the reason why. Look at verse 15. Why am I not to complain or argue? Verse 15, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine. That's the reason I chose that word. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. So he tells them the purpose. They're not to argue and complain so that they may live as blameless. That means without fault. Doesn't mean perfect. And we don't have time to get into this, but when you read the word blameless in the New Testament, it doesn't mean absolute perfection. It means that we live in such a way that we have a, a testimony that is, 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 is um, above reproach. In other words, there's, there's, there is a weight to what we say by how we live. It, it really carries the idea that we're not hypocritical, that, that we actually live what we say we believe. And then the word harmless, which I actually don't think is a really great translation of what the, the word was in the original Greek. The word means without mixture. It's the idea of sincerity, of, of purity. So he's saying be blameless and sincere. And then what about this phrase where he says the sons of God? means the children of God. And what he means by that is, is live like children of God. You know, when I, when I was rebellious as a kid, when I would do something or talk back to my teachers or something like that in school, my mom and dad were normally upset because how I lived reflected upon them. And I remember my dad saying something to this effect, my son is not going to talk like that to people who are in authority over him. 
In other words, he's saying, you need to live like my son. And that is not behavior that's acceptable for my son. What Paul is saying is live like the children, sons and daughters of God. And sons and daughters of God live blameless and sincere. They live blameless and sincere. The idea of without rebuke is without blame. Again, they're unblemished. And then notice the contrast, verse 15. They're to live this way in the midst or in the middle of a crooked and perverse nation or generation. And the idea is that they're living among sinners that don't know God and whose lifestyles are in sin and rebellion against them. And he says, your lives are to be in contrast to their lives. Now, look at the word crooked. You see that in verse 15? The word in the Greek is skolios. I didn't know what skolios until I was in a, a music class one time. I was taking voice lessons, and my teacher said, do you have scoliosis? And I said, uh, what is that? I didn't know. And they said, well, uh, it's when your, your, your spine is crooked. And basically they were telling me, you have really bad posture. And I do, I have terrible posture. Um, but I, I said, no, I don't have scoliosis. Well, that's what the word here is, scoliosis. It's in the Greek, it, it's crooked. It's, it's bent. He says we live in a world that's morally bent or, or crooked, that they are not going in God's direction. They've bent and turned. They are twisted and distorted. That's what the word perverse means. And Paul says you live in the midst of them, and you are to shine like stars. Now, <laughs> I hesitated to use that word stars because most people, when they hear the word stars, like, I'm going to be famous, right? I'm going to shine like a star. No, no. The idea is that we are reflecting the glory of God. The way we live points people to our Father. The attention is not on us. The attention is upon Him. Now look at verse 16. He says, holding forth, or some versions say, holding fast the word of life. What does that mean? Well, it depends if we should translate it holding forth or holding fast. And, and I've read some good people that, that disagree about this. It's, it's really hard to say. The good news is, is that Christians are actually supposed to do both of these things. And the idea of holding forth is that we are proclaiming the good news. That when we shine the light, we're actually holding forth the truth of the gospel so that those who are in darkness may hear and see the good news of Jesus. So holding forth gives the idea of evangelism or, or witnessing, that we're holding forth the word of light so that those that are in darkness can see the light of the gospel. But if it means holding fast, it means the way that we stand firm in the midst of this dark world that we live in is by holding fast to this word. But ultimately, what he's talking about in this passage is that by the way they live, they would shine. And the main way that they shine is by doing all things without murmuring and complaining. You remember the story in, in the book of Exodus about the children of Israel after they left Egypt? And then they had it so hard in Egypt. They were crying these bitter tears because of the suffering and the beatings and, and longing and pleading for God to rescue them. And God does. He leads them out by his servant Moses. They find themselves in the wilderness. And what do they do in the wilderness? They murmur and complain. 
They complain about the fact that they have to eat manna every day. That they have to eat this, this substance that God is providing for them. And they, they say, we had it better back in Egypt. They would come to a place where there was no water, not sure how they were going to drink, and they would begin to complain against God and against Moses. And you know the story, how God judged them. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Deuteronomy 32.5. I want you to see this really quickly. and Hold your finger at Philippians 2. We're coming right back here. But, but Deuteronomy 32.5, a lot of people think that Paul is actually kind of alluding to this in Philippians 2 when he says, uh, do all things without murmuring and disputings. And then verse 15 where he says, as the sons of God. But in Deuteronomy 32.5, speaking about those children of Israel in the in the wilderness, wandering and complaining. He says, they have corrupted themselves. Their spot or their image is not the the spot or the image of his children. They are perverse and crooked generation. So he's saying they were crooked and perverse because of their complaining. And it's almost as if he's saying, don't be like the children of Israel in the wilderness, complaining and arguing and grumbling about their circumstances. Because that's what the crooked and perverse do. But be like sons and daughters of God. Be like children of God who do all things without murmuring and complaining. Have you ever met someone that brightens the room up the moment they leave it? Because it's like they bring darkness and cloud the moment they come into the room. Because they're just complaining. They're argumentative. Christians are to be the opposite of that. If one of the dominant themes of the book of Philippians is joy, and it certainly is, nothing is more opposite of expressing joy than complaining and murmuring. I mean, who wants to hear the gospel from Christians that are always going around complaining about everything? I mean, who wants to hear the life-giving word from the lips of someone who's always argumentative? And always murmuring. And I wonder, are you known as someone who complains? When your coworkers are complaining or fellow students are complaining, are you just jumping right in with them, joining in with the rest, flowing down the stream with the crooked and perverse? Or do you stand out as a light in that darkness because you're not going to participate in the grumbling and the complaining? That you're filled with joy. And so because you're filled with joy, you're not filled with all these bitter complaints. In fact, you understand the, the full scope of life. As a Christian, you know that whatever difficulties you may be facing, whatever hardships may be at your feet right now, are temporary. And the glorious prospects of the future with God are eternal, and so you don't have to give in to all of this complaining and argumentativeness. I wonder, are you complaining towards God? Are you disputing with God because of your circumstances? Oh, friends, I want to encourage you to do all things without murmuring and disputing, without complaining and without arguing. And the way that we shine brightly in the midst of a world that views everything with this kind of um, negative, complaining, the way that we shine so brightly is by being 
genuinely joyful. Now, I'm not talking about fake plastic, you know. <laughs> I'm, not talking about, I'm talking about genuine joyfulness. I'm talking about a thankfulness that we have. I'm talking about a unity that we have among each other, that, that we don't have to be at each other's throats and, and arguing and, and always finding offense with each other, but we can shine brightly because of the hope that we have in Christ, and the good news of the gospel. Obey. How do you live as a citizen? of heaven on earth, obey, work out what God has worked in you. Number two, shine, do all things without murmuring and disputing. Last of all, number three, rejoice. There's a command given in verse 18, rejoice. Have joy in your sacrificial service for God. Paul concludes this, this little uh, section of Philippians 2 by talking about joy. He says in verse 17, Yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Look, look at the word in verse 17, offered. It, 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 it literally is the idea of something that's poured out as a sacrifice. In the Old Testament and, and even uh, in other pagan religions, one of the things that they would do is they would pour out a drink offering in honor of their gods, or the Jews would do it in, in honor of Jehovah. In fact, let me just read this really quickly. You can look it up later, but this is in Numbers uh, chapter 28 and verse 7. Numbers 28, 7 says, And the drink offering thereof shall be the fourth part of a hen for the one lamb. In the holy place shalt thou cause the strong wine to be poured unto the Lord for a drink offering. And what Paul is saying, he says it's a very real possibility that my life is going to be completely poured out as a sacrifice. And what he meant by that is that he's going to die. There's a very good possibility. He's in prison when he's writing this, and, and he thinks that there's a possibility that, that he could be poured out completely, give his life for Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul's life, even before he was put to death, his life was already an offering he was pouring it out. He was saying, Lord, all of me, all of my days, all of my time, all of my abilities, all of my energies, God, I'm pouring that out to you. And this, the final consummation of that was when he gave his life. Now, he didn't die in the, the book of Philippians. Paul doesn't die until we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he knew that the time for his death was at hand. But he wasn't sure in Philippians chapter 2 whether he would live. He believed he was going to be released from prison, he wasn't sure. And he said, if I be poured out, I'm going to rejoice in that. And then he goes on in verse 18 to issue a command to these Christians in Philippi. He says, and I'm, I'm calling upon you to have this same joy and rejoice. Not only rejoice with me, but he's saying rejoice about your own service and sacrifice. You see, Paul's not the only one whose life and possible death was like a drink offering. He's saying that to the Philippians. You as well are pouring out your lives, and you may be poured completely out in death. And he says, if that's the case, I'm calling upon you to rejoice. He says, rejoice with me in the sacrifice that I'm willing to make, and I'm going to rejoice with you in the sacrifice that I believe you are willing to make. I hope you've heard of a man named David Livingston. If not, I would encourage you to do some reading about him. He was a missionary in Africa in the 1800s. And on December 4th, 1857, he goes back to his home country 
of England, and he's at Cambridge University, and he's answering some questions from the students and faculty. And most of the questions centered around um, how he could, quote, leave the benefits of England behind. And they were kind of talking about all the sacrifices he had made of leaving behind a civilized place like England to go to places of Africa where he was suffering for the cause of the gospel. Listen to his answer. He says, For my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. But is that a sacrifice? which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, with the foregoing of common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let it only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. You see, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, friends, look, you're, you're looking at it all wrong. He says, I can't consider this a sacrifice, which has caused me so much joy now and which has so much glorious future ahead of me. So how can you and I be joyful even when our service for Jesus causes such sacrifice? Uh, one way is by constantly thinking about the unshakable hope that we have in Christ. That is, we must constantly be thinking about eternity. If your focus is always upon the here and now, it's going to be hard for you to have joy. Friends, don't just think about what's going to be happening 10 years from now, or 20 years from now, or 50 years from now. But what about 300 years from now? If you want to have joy, live for that, which is going to be with you 300, 3,000, 3 million years from now. In eternity. Paul could have joy in the midst of his sacrifice because he wasn't just living for now. Secondly, we have joy and sacrifice because we sincerely desire for the gospel to advance even if it requires great sacrifice. In other words, Paul cared more that the gospel would advance than that he would be comfortable. He cared more about the eternal joy of those who were lost that he was sharing the message with than he was in his temporary convenience. And so that's what his focus was on. That what I'm doing is leading to the advancement of the gospel and the eternal joy of people, not just my temporary happiness. And then finally, I would say that the way that we remain joyful in the midst of sacrificial service is by constantly thinking about the great sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. Again, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who emptied himself, took upon the form of a servant, was obedient even to the death 